This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, and with me, Cam Rasland, today we have uh, the returns of, he is uh, a producer on the morning run at BFM, uh, was until recently with the uh, producer-presenter of The Property Show, which is going to be coming in useful for today. He is Simwe Boon. Hi. Hello, that's him. And she is, um, yeah, I think just about one of the cleverest people I know. Um, you know, she's a, a lecturer and a playwright, which will also come in in a moment. She is Anne Lee. Hi, Cam. Hi, Sim. Hi there. And our three topics this week will be topic number one is non-essential arts, theatre and cinema. And uh, topic number two is birds aren't real. Uh, you heard it here. And finally, topic number three will be uh, practices that we think are universal but are actually culturally specific. And we're going to be talking as an example on home ownership versus renting. So with topic number one, Anne, the arts, non-essential. Yeah, my question um, really was, is uh, how come theatres and cinemas were the very last public venues to be allowed to open? Um, now sort of a bit related to what Sim was talking about earlier in, in relation to conspiracy theory. I, I'm not sure why we still have to, when you buy a cinema ticket, even now, you have to be two people, if you're sitting there, two people from the same household. I really don't know what that is about, except that there's a kind of concern maybe somewhere that things that happen in theater and cinema when the lights go down, there's something dangerous about uh, these two spaces as to why they were like, I'm, you know, it's, it's for discussion, but I, it occurred to me definitely that um, I, I was driving last, last weekend, you know, when the rains first started on Friday, right? And by Saturday already, you know, there was people were being evacuated, the, the floods were already high. And I was trying to make my way to Kuala Lumpur Performing Arts Centre to watch uh, a, a group of young actors performing a stage reading by um, uh, organised, well, uh, after workshop by Tieta Panas Panas and uh, Arif Hamizan of a play called KLKO that I wrote 25 years ago, right? This is the third student production. And so for me, uh, I was driving to support that, you know, uh, and to support the whole, but as I was driving and as the, you know, windscreen wipers are going crazy, crazy. And as my way shows, in fact, Kuala Lumpur Performing Arts Center is closed, but then somehow when you press the kind of thing, then it still gives you directions. Uh, I did feel a little bit as I was driving through the rain that, you know, a little bit like the violinists on the Titanic, you know, like why would, I, it, it felt, you know, I mean, very seriously, why was, you know, the things that we would write about in, in the arts, that performing or, or visual arts, what is the relevance of this when the rains are falling and uh, the soil is going to, shift and people's lives are going to be completely disrupted if not ended right I mean the number of people who are both sick and whose lives have been taken by these floods so I found myself as ironic as as it might be kind of agreeing with the idea that you know theater and performing arts are non-essential in a state like that but uh now this of course was a completely depressing thought uh, that, you know, what you have been committed to for, you know, the better part of your life is actually non-essential. But I did come to my senses after a while to think about how, in fact, um, the reason why, you know, this 
would appear to be quite so non-essential, apart from that early kind of notion around this sort of religious right somehow in the background, dictating why theatres and cinemas are the last places uh, that to open to the public, is that it's non-essential because we don't have arts in education. It's such a long and old lament, uh, but it's not just kind of benign uh, uh, neglect. It's really strategic neglect. If you cannot do as, as subjects, music and, and so forth in schools, then of course people are just going to have other priorities. So of course they're going to be non-essential. So of course you're going to have a space where you can say, oh, these are not good for you or whatever it is in the same old ways. And you know, this is not an old problem, yeah? Uh, but as the rain fall, fell, the tears somewhat fell, you know, that, that we are still 30, 40, 35 years on from where we were, a place where the only the expensive private schools of which suddenly they are mushrooming everywhere uh, can do something like a, a music, you know, because they can afford to have the instruments and so forth. Mm. No, it's an extracurricular one. Okay, so uh, Sim, let me ask you then. You, you're a, a sensible young man with your head screwed on, and Someone. yeah, and a homeowner and all that kind of thing. Uh, you, <laughs> the arts for you, uh, does this resonate? What what Anne's saying? Are you uh, saying? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I I studied in public school, but also, I mean, depending on which public school you're going to, right? I grew up in Subang Jaya, so the public school there, the people that go to school there. You know, even though the state-sanctioned curriculum, I do felt, felt that didn't have an emphasis on art, the people I was around did talk about art. So to some degree, I had some knowledge or appreciation of art where, you know, let's go to the museum this weekend, you know, let's go to the art gallery, you know. But I think echoing what Anne said, right, in, in a more larger way, it, it does feel that arts is neglected by the powers that be, by general society at large, right, you know, um, like you said, uh, cinemas, theaters, art galleries were the last place to be open. These, and 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 I had a whole issue with this whole essential, non-essential thing. Uh, like in, for me, I produced the morning run, you know, and we had discussions about this where uh, some economists had come to say, like, you know, you 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 can't do that because all jobs are essential. Everyone works for a living. Everyone makes money of it so that they can live. So who are you to say that arts is not essential and and a, a cinema is not essential? when they hire people, when people make their livelihoods for it, right? But of course, I think a lot of this also deals with like somewhat a false sense of security. Like even now, when you go to a cinema, you have to sit two spaces away. Like why do you still have to do that, right? Like it's also somewhat to give us illusion where like, you know, it's safer that way, even though scientifically it might, it's just about the same as going anywhere. So I really don't know what to think about like our appreciation for it but I do think with like internet and everything with how pop culture is coming through with music with TV shows that everyone's exposed to the appreciation the knowledge the thirst for things like that are is growing you know I'm sure nowadays when you talk to a young person be it that they may be coming from public school or a private school um, you can still form or they can still have kind of like a commentary about something like a theater or a show or a art piece or something like that. Mm. If you talk to them about it, you know. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I I think though that the the, the denigration of of arts and entertainment in this country is is very specific to this country. A friend of mine who who's an actor and he does a lot of work in Indonesia, a Malaysian actor does work in Indonesia. He was quoting back to me the famous P Ramli movie where the P Ramli character is courting the daughter of a, a well-to-do man. And the well-to-do man is going, no way does my, my daughter marry an artist. Too, 
but then he says that in the Indonesian example, it'd be, oh, you're an artist. Marry my daughter. <laughs> it's, uh, and then Indonesia is a country that really prides itself on its cultural heritage and looks down on us in Malaysia as being Philistines because they think we've got nothing. And um, so you're, where, where does that come from? I, I don't know. But it's, um, is there any turning back on that? I, th- I think the internet, though, for young people, you mentioned young people, Sim, the venues used to be physical spaces where you have to pay a certain amount of money. You, have to, you even have to pay up front. And, and is it 20% yeah. or something? You have to pay the tickets up front to Slango State Government or something? Yeah, entertainment tax and all. And, and physical venues back then, even up to now, somewhat can still be curated by the powers that be, or whoever that wants to control a narrative, yeah. somehow yeah. or rather, right? Whereas the internet is more free, right? And, and you, think, can, you can actually earn money. You could yeah, earn money. Exactly, yeah. So I think generally, if you want to look at it as well, art is used as a way to kind of um, subvert, control, create a narrative, right? You know, I mean, historically, artists or people within the creative scene are seen as more liberal, more radical, you know, and I mean, our government probably wouldn't like that, right? They don't want free thinkers coming in. To think well, I think, right? yeah. yeah, I mean, that's that's certain in... in there's so much within the history of proving exactly that. I mean, the history of Malaysia. But then there are many artists who don't, you know, who actually mm. are, are, are happy and, and earn their income by being in government or public agencies. Um, sorry, I've stopped saying government agency. I'm saying public now. My <laughs> promise to myself is seeing as government money, it's public money. It needs, you know, or, you know, it's a it, reminder. But, but I think for... It, it is a kind of revolution that has to happen, I think, for, for arts because it's happened in or it's happening more in the sciences, I think. You know, that the division that has is an old division also that you get divided when you go into the arts or the sciences. But this impression that the sciences, you know, you're, you're cleverer uh, uh, if you're in the sciences than in the arts. And this is something which I think is happening um, globally. Arts and humanities is forever having to kind of justify its, its presence. Except, I mean, you... You gave an example of Indonesia. Of course, we have, you know, we have to be more, maybe more specific about who's saying what about the arts. But certainly, yeah, I mean, you can go to schools which are art specific, uh, much more than 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 you can in Malaysia. Uh, and the curriculum is uh, uh, much more intense. You can do arts subjects uh, mm. and and be examined, uh, which some people, of course, don't think that's the right way to treat art subjects. But so long as we have a mentality where, you know. It's, it's, if it's not an examinable subject, it's not a serious subject. It's only extracurricular, and that's what you're supposed to do by the side. But we need, we certainly need a minister who understands culture and arts and is not just locked into the old paradigm of tourism and, you know, dance extravaganzas to showcase a bit of zapin, a bit of ribbon dance, a bit of bartanatyam. You know, and, and that that reflects Malaysia. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the fact that our ministry is amalgamation of arts, tourism, and culture is proof, right? They're just putting everything together, whereas it, it should be, I think, segmented where, you know, you should have a ministry of culture or a ministry of arts or something because, you know, each on its own can, I mean, it's such a big responsibility each on its own, right? But again, I think, you know, they, they just don't, I don't think they value it. They don't look at it as a way to I think the obsession is more on numbers and like you said right examinable features so you know yeah. they, they when they look at the statistics 
when they tell the statistics of like Malaysia's achievement, you know, look at us, we have 10,000 engineers, we have 15,000 doctors, and something mm. like that. Well, I, I, th- I think you people are way too naive. It's only of any value if it entertains tourists, okay? I think we understand the arts now more clearly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> why aren't in, in Plantan banned for Malaysians, but okay for tourists? Well, we could do that, yeah, yeah. Se- separate kind of that, cultural landscapes. Yeah. yeah. Show your foreign passport, you can go witness um, Mine Putri. Um, so, but uh, we're going to move on now to topic number two, which, uh, well, Sim, when he told me this, I was stunned. I did not know this, but I'm now convinced that birds are not real. Yes. So there is a uh, movement in America. It's called Birds Unreal. Uh, they have amassed thousands of followers. Uh, so their theory states that the US government has replaced all the birds with uh, secret government drones uh, to spy on humans. Yeah. But in actuality, uh, the person that started this movement and most of the followers and the believers, I would like to think all, uh, don't really believe in it. Uh, they know that it's, I mean, this can't be real, but it's generally a movement made as a kind of like commentary on how conspiracy theories have really taken over the mainstream. You know, what with QAnon and the whole COVID situation, you know. Uh, for me, I mean, while I was growing up, I used to think like, you know, conspiracy theories, or at least when talking to people, right? Conspiracy theories are like a, a fringed society thing where you mention conspiracy theories and you wouldn't really know anyone that reads or believe in conspiracy theories. But nowadays, um, it seems more and more common, right? I mean, they make news headlines. They make mainstream news headlines for a short bit until they're disproven or whatnot, you know? But so I, I, it got me thinking about like what is so appealing about conspiracy theories? What makes people really dive deep into it? I mean, for me, it has always been somewhat of a fascination and an entertainment, but I, I you know, I'm not going to like disown my parents and everything because they took the COVID-19 vaccine or other forms of uh, conspiracy and whatnot, right? And I think even, of course, these conspiracies that I've talked about are very international, but they also have like very local conspiracies that I think are quite widespread, you know, uh, you know, the belief that there's a certain race or a certain uh, cabal that looks to unseat the government and take control of, you know, everyone else. So, yeah, you know, why does it seep in so deeply or at least, or is it because it's more visible now? Like, you know, people can freely talk about it now that, uh, you're just seeing more of it, but it's always been there for a while where your friend that you didn't think was a conspiracy theorist was actually a conspiracy theorist. And I'm not, I think that there's a, a PhD in um, looking at anti-WhatsApp group um, <laughs> and hey. how that, that operates. Well, yes, we well, are now anti No, but, no I'm, I'm putting to you. No, what I mean is that, you know, what what Sim's talking about is correct, and 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 because you're a PhD, and I look up to you for that. That it, one could one could really look into to the the way that conspiracies work in this country. I'm still smarting from Auntie. Don't know what reference. <laughs> well, you know you know the aunties WhatsApp groups, don't you? And uncles too. There's uncles, yeah, yeah uncles yeah. and aunties. Wow, they're crazy. I think, I think for me, I mean, I've really only identified with conspiracy theories in watched kind of them. In the U.S., so to see how, for example, the Republican Party has shifted so much to the right, where you know, even to kind of explain what was it that happened when you know people entered the the building, uh, and that this was not something that it was is not an insurgency. It's just something that you know, mm. all the ways in which that is being denied, and the Q anon and all of you know how how that arises is, I suppose, by 
I, I would think that conspiracies are not necessarily more widespread than ever before, except maybe as an explanation for how uh, media groups have been broken down and, and you know, th that the internet has resulted in, and, you know, this has been written up, right, uh, uh, in terms of people's access to information is now more open, but by the same token, the kind of uh, divining of how to know what source is reliable has shifted as well. Uh, I'm not sure that there are more conspiracy theories than before. I mean, I think I've always believed in certain sort of uncertainties because I don't trust that source or because of where I am on the political spectrum. I don't, is there, I mean, I, I mentioned the shift in the Republican Party, uh, but I suppose if I look at, say, a local conspiracy and how one particular race is brought up by so much propaganda to believe a certain thing, it doesn't matter which race it is, but you know, you are within the Malaysian context, you, you are brought up to believe certain truths, and then only when you break out of those as you grow up, then you can have a sense of how, eh, that was not what I was brought up to believe. I thought it was this, this, this. So I don't see, in other words, how the conspiracy, whether these conspiracy theories have increased in density or, 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 or in numbers, or if they're actually the same as they ever were. It's just more visible now, perhaps, right? Because people are freely talking about it or people can air their opinions out. Whereas like maybe 10 years ago, you might, I mean, the conversations might happen at a more closed setting where it's at home, your parents, your uncles, whatnot. But, you know, whether you believe it or not, no one knows that you are talking about it. Whereas now, it's more public, I think. Yeah, but it's, it's being pushed. Money is being paid to propagate these stories in yeah, the right it, places. It, it, it allows people who benefit from such confusion to continue reaping whatever they take from it, right? And I mean, I guess on the same... On the same spectrum, it's like it's more easy to see someone engaging in conspiracy theories now. It's also easy to kind of push these narratives because, you know, social media being one where... It, and it's like kind of a two side of the coin, right? So like um, like going back to this Birds Unreal thing, he did an interview with uh, New York Times, I think, where he talked about how the founder of the movement grew up in a very conservative family where he was being fed with conspiracy theories about how the Democrats... Uh, or a group of pedophiles controlling the world. And only when he grew older and he started using the internet did he read about, did he have access to information that is like, actually, this isn't true. Actually, this is probably all insane. And like, you know, these are there are other truths out there. So it's like two sides of the coin, right? Where at the same time, people use the internet to fuel conspiracies. People do use the internet uh, to break conspiracies. Yeah. I wonder what, I wonder what the ratio is though for falling into the, the the rabbit hole and yeah and crawling out again I, I i'd be interested to know you know any conspiracy theories in real life we don't have any name names but Do, oh um yeah no i mean i was talking to somebody just the other day who's like eminently sensible and then it was like oh and by the way uh vaccines don't work um yeah, so that's surprising <laughs> right that's the most sometimes the most sensible people are the ones that are also like whoa when did you go there yeah 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 oh and the earth is flat <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just to conclude, I, I, I think, though, that if you can persuade a person to truly believe that the earth is flat, then you can get them to do anything if you spend enough money. Power of a salesman. Yeah, yeah. Because as everyone knows, it's an oblong. Um, <laughs> and it was a donut. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. That makes Yeah. So uh, uh, we move on, though. And uh, But in a moment, we're going to look at other uh, culturally specific practices here on A Bit of Culture, BFM 89.9. And we're back with uh, myself, Cam Ruslan, and Anne Lee, and Simwe Boon. 
we're looking at, in topic number three, some practices we assume are universal, but are actually very culturally specific. And I'd like to use the example of home ownership versus rental. Because in Malaysia, there is, it's an assumption. I, I, I think I'm right in saying there's an assumption, there's a belief that you must own your own home. And as a consequence in this country, certainly in the Klang Valley, I did a lot of research on this once upon a time, but I cannot find my notes anymore. <laughs> it was a very high value, something like 60 or 70% owner-occupier in Klang Valley. But when I went to Germany, I discovered that nobody owns their own home. Everybody rents. And there's no stigma against it. I walked into, and this was a while ago, and I, I'm sure prices have changed, but I walked into very large apartments in Berlin, very large, very comfortable, and they were paying for rent the same amount. I mean, you literally just convert the money as equivalent size places, perhaps even smaller size places in Kuala Lumpur. Plus, they were very protected in their rights. So the cultural practice in Germany is against homeownership for rental, which seems so alien and crazy from a Malaysian perspective. And, I, and I'm wondering, where did that come from? What is the obsession with home ownership in this country? Because if you rent and something terrible happens to the property, you can just walk away. Whereas if you buy, then you've got everything lumped into that one spot in the hope that it will stand and be there forever. So, I mean, Sim, you were on the property show and you've recently got your own place. You're a young person. You're going to be paying the mortgage for the next 150 years. Uh, you, you must have bought into the Malaysian uh, dream. Yeah, I mean... Definitely, I, I definitely bought into it. But I think, you know, looking into this issue, and I've looked into this issue on the property show, on morning show, and in BFM in general, a lot of people look into this issue, right? I think for specifically of Malaysia, there's several factors built to it, right? There's the historical factor where home ownership was driven by the government as a benchmark of economic development, right? The more homeowners we have, the more economically successful the country is, you know, the more uh, wealthier the people are or uh, the people seem, right? You know, when you use the word homeowner, it sounds great, right? Where in actuality, a lot of these homes are owned by the bank. You are actually the owner of a bank loan until that 35 years is up where you actually get the deed of the property, right? And another part of it is also a cultural thing, right? Where people want that safety and security, or at least they've been brought up to think that, you know, after you have a car, uh, when you're about to get married, getting a house is the next step, you know, everyone Everyone says that, everyone does that, everyone says that, you know, and it's kind of like pushed by your parents, your parents' parents, you know. Uh, and I think there's also a disconnect where maybe in our parents' time, my parents' time or their parents' time, buying a house then was much more cheaper compared to buying a house now. So they live in a world or they at least take from what they were thinking that like houses aren't that unaffordable now, still unaffordable. You can buy a house if you want to, although the reality might say otherwise. But it's also uh, kind of like the laws that are in place. It's much more easier to get a house loan in Malaysia than it is outside of Malaysia, in Berlin, in Germany as well. So because of that, everyone's driven to buy a house. And honestly, you just need a few documents. You need maybe three to four months, a bank slip, you know. Uh, you can go to a bank and ask for a bank loan, you know. And plenty of banks out there are offering bank loans. So it's just up to how risky you are. And, you know, it's, it's, it's somewhat easy. And, a lot of property developers sprung up in like the 90s or 2000s, you know, where it was very easy to get licensed to be a property developer. Everyone became a property developer. Construction companies, rubber companies, these companies, everyone. Because all you need to do is just buy a land and build houses. Apply from the government, you'll probably get the license and build houses. So 
it was very easy to build houses. It was very easy to sell houses and it was very easy to buy houses. So it became in such a way where buying a house is the next thing after buying a car, after getting a job. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, what happens in this country is you have cyclical property bubbles which come and go, whereas in Germany, you don't get that. So, Anne, you, you, are, you are a, um, a homeowner. You're a happy homeowner. Did, would, you, would you rather be well, renting? I think, I think I wanted to ask him first, like, what are the, I mean, owning your own home is a very, still a very middle class, right? It's not a, it's not, Yeah. I mean, what proportion of the country actually can or do own their own homes? I mean, it's... Well, we have a very high household debt. So I do think that in terms of people owning a home or getting a bank loan to uh, buy a house is quite high. I don't really have the specific numbers for it. But I think if you talk to the general Malaysian, the aspirations to own a home is still very much there. It's still very much a real. Whether they are working towards it or not, a lot of them, I mean, like I'm comparing it to Berlin, right? A lot of Malaysians that I feel even my friends that I talk to, you know, they do, oh, maybe I'll own a home one day. Oh, I do want to buy a house one day or I am working to buy a house, right? I can't say maybe six out of 10 of people I know have that sort of thinking. Whereas if you go to Germany, it's less, way less than that. Everyone just rents, you know, which is the norm, I think. Yeah. Mm. So, and I mean, you, you, so, you, so, so you're, yeah, yeah, okay. So, because for me, you know, I still think of, even though it may be easier at times to get a loan, I think we are talking of a particular class, right? We're not talking. Mm. Yeah, it's a middle class thing. Right. Okay. Okay. So, so in terms of that, then the middle class is actually a small proportion of the rest of the country. Um. Yeah. I think it's like okay. So if you break okay. it down, right, the T twenties they don't need to worry about it. They will all get free houses from dads, and they're probably eighteen years old. They have like six houses to their names and stuff. Whereas it's a middle class aspiration where. Owning a home is still seen as an investment because you buy a property, then maybe you can rent it out and everything. It's one of the ways that you can claw out of that middle class income bracket, right? So I think depending on the proportions of middle class in Malaysia, um, that might be how it is. But then again, home ownership also varies across the country where when we are talking about this, it might be from a very Klang Valley demographic because I don't know how people or the younger people in Kedah, Kelantan approach home ownership because a lot of them will end up coming over here to work and moving their lives here, right? So when you talk about like wanting to own a home, uh, I don't think there's been research or been questions asked whether these people, are they are you looking for a house back home in Kedah, Kelantan or back here? Because then the prices vary, right? Yeah. Well, um, Anne, Anne and Mia are old enough to remember the Briggs plan. Uh, Anne has a confused look on her face. The, so the Briggs plan was uh, was what the British came up with back in, God, 1956 or something, in order to work out how to defeat the communists. And uh, we remember the communists during the emergency. And one of the one of the points in the Briggs plan, amongst others, was for the, the new villages, for the, for the Chinese in the new villages, that they would get ownership they would have the 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 option to have ownership land ownership for their properties alongside with citizenship and that was incredibly popular and it it undercut the communist public ownership philosophy in one shot because it gave people the notion of having a stake in the land having a stake in the land and having the security of not being pushed around you couldn't be pushed around because you own your own place and i think that that kind of legacy continues in this that's not not that long ago you know this is our just our grandparents time <clears throat> so i think that home ownership the desire for home ownership in this country is so strong because 
well, there was a time not long ago when you didn't have it. And there's always that sense, well, you can't do anything to me when I own my place. Yeah, exactly. It, it, again, it's a security blanket, right? Like if I'm old and alone towards the end of my life, if I have my own home, I don't need to be worried about being kicked out and wandering the roads by myself. If I have no one to take care of me, you know, at least I have my home that I can be secure in towards to to a certain level, right? So I think a lot of it is also psychological, right? Like you want to have because when you rent what you where you are staying, because also staying in a place, staying in a house is also a very personal, I want to say activity, but very personal experience, right? You know, you literally get naked in that place, right? So to know that you're in a building or in a room that ultimately is not yours can maybe can be something that you know you think about, right? Like if you own this house or you're paying for this house that belongs to you under your name. You, you, you feel more comfortable doing yeah. whatever you yeah, want. I think, yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, the aspiration, I think, is widespread. Just the reality of being able to buy is something completely different. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The money that people make nowadays does not match up to what's being offered. But the problem is, what happens is then the banks and the developers will redesign the way where you kind of like have the illusion that you can afford it, right? Like, for example, like buying a house nowadays, some of the things to people talk about or what to watch out for is like, you know, when when a developer comes to you and offers you a house, you know, here's a 550,000, half a million ringgit house for something small. But, you know, you can afford it if you earn this much, this much, uh, because we will then break it down. You know, you only need to pay a deposit of this much and then you get a rebate of that much and it will give you this thing free, that thing free and all that stuff. But in reality, that house has no business costing 500,000 ringgit. You know, they probably bought the land at a very cheap price. The building of the house at the end, they probably won't cost, in reality, the house, house actually probably cost 200 or 100,000 ringgit to make. The rest is just profit, you know. So mm. maybe they'll just lower it down a bit by offering you all these goodies to kind of convince you that it is affordable, but in actuality, it's not. So, you know, they, they do co- corporates, privates, and even the government design a system where even though it's inaffordable, it seems affordable. So, in that way, the aspirations that you have becomes more, at least you feel that it's more tenable or more achievable. But oh, then you actually yeah. get into it. It's, yeah. Those so we scams. are big. Yeah. Scam. I mean, I think the, the, even the idea of cooperatives, you know, where the government using public money subsidizes rental rates for that's appropriate to that particular class or, or as we as we do it by income category, right? Uh, but that, you know, it, it, it still made a very private individual matter. Uh, and I think that that is very bogus. I think that, that the vast majority of people cannot afford. So, you know, you ask me, am I a homeowner? Yes. And I feel that that makes me a very, very privileged person within the country's landscape. And to be able to have a place to offer for people who are affected by the floods right now is an incredibly lucky position to be in. And that's because of, I think, Sim, you mentioned that my parents, yeah, my parents, I come from a solidly middle-class background. So both are medical professionals. So they were onto my case to to start paying a mortgage when I was completely not ready for it. Uh, uh, But I am grateful that they did that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to be in this position now to be able to have that nest of comfort. Um, Mm. But the problem is to me not about kind of you know, being able, the difference between, the cultural practice should be to be able to afford places that also afford different size families, you know, I mean, not just for, I mean, I've seen one recent scheme that I saw was trying to offer and make it for low cost apartments and so on. It was tiny. It was a, a rabbit warren replacement. And, and the, as you say, Sim, the price to pay for that 
was scandalous. Why, why is that price so high? Why is not public money being used to make houses more affordable, whether renting or what, at rental rates that most people can afford? And in spaces where when floods come, they are not as, as prone, not only because of the houses, but because of the environment around those houses. You know, I mean, that to me is, is, yeah. is where yeah. public funds should be spent, you know, uh, should be serving the larger numbers of, of the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wish we had more the, the German cultural practice, quite frankly. Um, which but rental we, as in affordable rental. Not yeah, absolutely. The, the German example, I imagine, but I don't know, also a, 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 because it is seems to be quite progressive in terms of how it, its policy, at least the last government, you know, accepting, I think it was, what, 1.2 million refugees uh, yeah. uh, uh, so, so that idea and housing them and, 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 you know, suggests that at least for rental, you would have something, you know, a system in place that allows more people to be able to afford rental, not yeah. just between rental and owning. Yeah, I think another kind of like angle towards this rental kind of like difference between here and Germany, right? There's also this thing about um, the ability to rent where, I mean, it's hard for certain groups of people in, you know, certain races of people to rent, right? I mean, uh, a lot of people are racist, right? So, you know, yeah. when you talk about That's income really brackets, right? Really and the class, right? Let's say, you know, Indians are disproportionate in terms of their income, but at the same time, they can't afford a house, so they have to rent. But at the same time, a lot of people don't want to rent to Indians, right? I mean, that's a huge issue as well. Whereas yeah, yeah. perhaps in Germany, in Berlin, it's less of an issue. I don't have the statistic, but I'd imagine it to be a less of an issue compared to here where, you know, you, we only want a specific type of person, a specific type of race to rent or the avail the options available are only allowed for these certain people, you know, um, a, a single male or single female. And, you know, these, these weird parameters that are no, nowhere. That's why we don't have a law. We don't have an act that controls this. Uh, you know, it's freely allowed for anyone to decide who they want to rent for, which there's good and bad. But what it creates is this situation where I don't want to rent to these certain people. I don't want to rent to that certain people. And it creates a disproportionate kind of like situation where a lot of them can't rent. Yeah. And so actually, even those that are like, let's say those that can afford to rent hmm. um, just because of the skin of their color, people don't want to rent it to them. So they might just, you know, what? I'm just going to buy a house. Yeah, yeah. And, and far, 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 far away, because that's what you can afford. But we must wrap this one up. But I would say that we, I think we do have a very strong impulse in this country, amongst all races, to want to buy property. And it is terrifying if people use that uh, impulse in order to just be parasites and to con people into buying places that are unfit. <laughs> so, um, And it does happen. It does happen. You know, we've seen it in the last... As a um, practice. As a cultural practice, it happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we move on, though, to uh, the final part of the show, recommendations, where we recommend something that we think might be of interest. And Anne Lee goes first. Okay, thanks, Ken. Uh, so I'm reading something called Red Lines, Political Cartoons and the Struggle Against Censorship. Uh, and it's by Cherry and George and Sunny Liu. And published by the... Uh, MIT Press, Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press, and uh, published this year, earlier this year. And it is an incredible book. It's something that uh, I believe you you uh, you cannot buy in Singapore, but you can own in that wonderful way. Sorry, you cannot buy, but you, 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 you yes, you can have it. You, you can have it, but you cannot buy it in Singapore. Like chewing uh, gum. Uh, 
Uh, yes, exactly. Yes, which is a, which is a wonderful way of getting of getting around you know that kind of chewing gum theory of censorship, right? So Cherry and George, of course, is is a very respected scholar around uh, issues of of um, well, how to say media uh, uh, um, usage, and uh, he's actually professor of media studies right now at Hong Kong's Baptist uh, University or Hong Kong Baptist University, and. But Sunny Liu, of course, is the celebrated cartoonist. And the book is actually done as a, in much in the style of his earlier, you know, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai, which was amazing bestseller and won all these uh, awards. And it's looking at the practice of uh, censoring political cartoonists, but from the point of view of the cartoonists themselves. So a lot of our, many cartoonists have been uh, interviewed for their perspective uh, and, and, in the area of humor studies, political cartoons and cartoons is, is the most studied area. But what is not studied is kind of from the point of view of the cartoonists themselves, and also including the perspective of Southeast Asian cartoons, or, or rather the perspective. So this is this is a very rare and precious book, and it's 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 uh, it's now only being reviewed. You know, both in academic journals and in, in sort of arts spaces. And I'm, I'm reading it because I have to review it, but I really recommend it as something which, you know, is, is, a, is a way of reading that is a joy in terms of how it's designed uh, by Sunny Liu. And, and, you know, so you're reading as it were heavy stuff, but in a way that's, that is very entertaining at the same time. Um, so what's it called again and who wrote it? It's called Red Lines. Political Cartoons and the Struggle Against Censorship by Cherry Ann George and Sunny Liu. And the publisher? Publisher is MRT Press, uh, I, you know, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you can, you can buy it online. Right. Wow. Okay. That sounds good. So, Sim, what's your recommendation? Well, uh, I was going to recommend something to watch on YouTube, but I think what Anne recommended uh, reminded me of something that uh, I was given to as a gift which is also uh, is a graphic novel or cartoon novel or something, which I, I think I would want to recommend, just echoing off what Anne is recommending. It's, um, it's uh, by Guy Delis. It's called uh, Jerusalem Chronicles from a Holy City. It's a travelogue of um, his trip and his like one, two years living in Jerusalem and understanding the divisions between Palestine and Jerusalem where it takes into account of both. I think, you know, um, it was really cool because it's like a comic book is delivered in a graphic novel uh, and it's light, it's humorous, but it also touches on very serious topics. So reading it, you then become more informed. You then kind of like understand the struggles and it's done in a way where I think it doesn't really try to take anyone's side because, you know, this issue can be very divisive. Uh, so I would recommend it. Uh, I think it's still available online. I just Google it and you can get it from that book depository and everything. So it's Jerusalem Chronicles from the Holy City by uh, Guy Delis. Uh, I, I think I've seen that book. It's just, it's uh, pen, black and white drawings, but really mm -hmm. beautiful, so detailed. Yeah, yeah. Very simple, very yeah, yeah. clean, very easy to kind of digest, entertaining, but, and it's done in, you know, very everyday language, right? Because it's a travelogue. It's just him living there. But the observations and then the commentary, it's actually quite, it's much more deeper. Right. Uh, so my recommendation, it's not really a recommendation, but it's just, I don't know, in memory, I was shocked to see that uh, Book Excess, the company here in Kuala Lumpur that uh, uh, sold quite cheap books, that are interesting books, got completely devastated by the floods and had to, well, just had, simply had to throw away their entire book collection. And they say they've gone bust, that they're, they're out of, going out of business. 
and the video just showed truckloads of bulldozer loads of pulped soggy books being dumped you know and i love books and that really hurt and it's i've been to that bookshop and i've bought many books from there and uh so yeah i don't know what to say really it's just it came as a real shock so book excess yeah yeah it's the one near out in subang right oh no no near near putrajaya they they have a they had a 24 hours that yeah. that that store which is massive right mm, mm. that one is the one that was flooded they just opened it yeah yeah it's very sad very sad so uh, a cultural victim of the floods recent floods so uh, well that on that sad note <laughs> we come to the end of this week's show and uh, only remains for me now to thank Simwe Boon thank you pleasure to be here and Anne Lee. Uh, and uh, and are you uh, are you you know you're a fully qualified professor and all that PhD? Do you do you then have to do a do you have to write papers and you've got to come at something clever and new every every once in a while, haven't you? Uh, I do, uh, which mm. makes it. I'm not a fully qualified professor. I just have a PhD and I get to be called doctor though. Uh, mm. For what it's worth, although my niece says that's not a real doctor, and she's absolutely right. Uh, so <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah, I'm trying still to be writing the book of the thesis, uh, but it's very hard. Um, yeah. And yeah, like many, I yeah. have, you know, sorrows to deal with. So yeah. it's taking a very long time. Yes. Well, good luck with that. Good luck with that. And um, myself, Cam Raslan. And so please join us next week for another exciting episode of A Bit of Culture here on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.